In the studio today to open season four of the show. That's right, y'all. Effing Shakespeare is on our fourth season. To celebrate, we have Houston's own lit genius, Mark Effing Haber. He's our first returning guest, so we must be doing something right. He's here to talk Tolstoy's dog problem, melancholy, the funhouse mirror situation that is Eastern European and Central American literary scenes. His rich new novel, Reinhardt's Garden, is discussed, as well as how to compel the authors who blurb you to use the word genius. He's keeping that secret, but we do get a bit of a bonus material around makeover this season with a Haber-inspired esoterica category of questions to round out the show. We're going to sustain this the whole season, so you better like it. If one or two is good taste, I try and go about three past that. So just to, just to hammer it home. Yeah, well, yeah, Oprah, Reese, you know. Reese, yeah. Reese, oh, Reese. Yeah. She's totally going to acquire this. Yeah. Such her style. An earlier review from Kirkus has it. Yeah. You know Haber is sitting right here. <laughs> as you edit your intro in front of I'm Jessica Cole. I'm Fulu. I'm Kate Martin-Williams. And this is Effing Shakespeare. By writers, for writers. So today we have a disclaimer and an introduction, because Mark Haber is a friend of Bloomsday. So friendly that he lends his kind and expert support to our editorial board. He was our third ever podcast guest on Effing Shakespeare way back when we were babes in the podcasting woods. Now we're crones in podcast years, which if you know him, you realize is perfect symbolism. He is indeed a launcher of all sorts, catapulting good things into the world. He's the ops manager at Brazos, the indie of indie bookstores here in Houston, generously stocked with local and international authors, as well as serving as the site for several literal and literary book launches. The subject of our first conversation, his hilarious and wonderful book of short stories, Deathbed Conversions, was published in 2008 and then relaunched nine years later in Spanish by the incredible Mexico City Press, Argonautica. Rocket man indeed. Mark is back with a sleek turbo of a novel, Reinhardt's Garden. Don't let the bucolic name fool you into thinking this isn't a missile of a novel, shuttling back and forth within one book-long paragraph between Eastern Europe and the South American rainforest. As an early Kirkus review has it, in form and language, his story entertainingly evokes the mood it's chasing. Interior, mercurial, implacable. We are so thrilled to welcome Mark Haber to Effing Shakespeare. Really happy to be here. Thank you. Yay! I, I consider like you all friends as well. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming. It is my pleasure. Um, Jess and I were just floored by this book. I'm really happy to hear that. I really am. Just floored. So, so good. I think my first question is actually a little bit of a gripe. I think I'm kind of pissed because, <laughs> like, as a writer, you either get to really know how to structure a novel and tie plot points together in ways that are seamless and even hard to identify like you get to do that or you get to tell a really meaningful story mm -hmm. that's rich and this book is set in 1907 but it's 
infinitely applicable to us Absolutely. right now in the moment. Absolutely. And I'm upset that you get to do both. Thank you. That sucks. <laughs> no, it's really, it's really. No, it's, well, I appreciate that. I mean, it's really fantastic. Thank I, you. Those I, are the things I think you aim for. You want to kind of uh, be stylistically maybe innovative. It's not like I go out to say, well, I want to, you know, I don't, I don't go out to try and be innovative, but this was a story that kind of, I felt big to be told this way. And then you want to, of course, be, have a story that, as you said, that kind of speaks to, to the reader. So which is first for you? Like, did you, did the twins come to you or was it, I want to tell this metaphysical story that's very important and answers these important philosophical questions. Well, what, yeah. Okay. So what happened was it's very, writing for me is very, very, and Chris Kander, the, the Houston writer, and I've spoken about this and we're very fly by the seat of our pants writers. So a lot of writers storyboard or they, they, they plot out what they want to do. And I don't, I really just kind of wake up each day, almost like with like the jungle metaphor with a machete and I cut my way through and I find where I'm going because I get excited by that. It's fun that way. And I don't always know where I'm going, but I kind of, so to answer your question, it was aesthetically, I knew I wanted to write a dense kind of paragraph long book that didn't break. I'm a huge fan of Roberto Bolaño's By Night in Chile, which is about this size. It's like a novella or a small novel. It's one paragraph. And I, I realized that if I did it stylistically where I was kind of stuck in this paragraph, it actually afforded me all this freedom because I'm in this little square that I can't get out of. And suddenly I can go anywhere I want. So one second I'm in a jungle and the next second. So by restraining myself, I gave myself absolute freedom. It's yeah. very strange. But by doing that, by kind of putting that on myself, I was able to just go everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And I had no idea it would be about melancholy or anything like that. What? So what was first? So what you was, just said, I want a paragraph? Is I, it? No, so I, I knew I wanted a paragraph. I really, as you know, I love Latin America. I wanted to be in the jungle. And then certain things that started to come into the story dictated things. So I knew since it was a latter age Tolstoy, he had, of, of course, written The Death of Ivan Ilyich. And he had to be older and have these people that came to his estate. Very, He became like this religious pilgrim. It had to be later. So 1907 was dictated a little bit later because it was an older Tolstoy who died in like 1910. Okay. Okay, so Tolstoy came first. Yeah, well, Tolstoy, so I wrote the book chronologically. The way you read it is how I wrote it. And of course, I would go back and edit and do things. But so the first page that you read of that book is really what I set down. So I started in a notebook at a coffee shop. And this is a very short story, but this is really how it began, very organically. And I'd finished the book that I wasn't super happy with, but I did it and I shopped it around. And I said, well, I want to write something dense that's, un, you know, an unbroken paragraph. And... I'm in a coffee shop and I start writing really what you see is the first page of the book. And I, I invent this side character who I'm like, well, he'll be a running joke. I'll go to him every once in a while. And he's working on this treatise about melancholy. <laughs> and I wrote it and I didn't write another thing in the notebook. I sat at the computer the next day and I'm like, no, he's, he's the one. He's the one that should have my attention. And I was off. And the book is, was written kind of how you read it. It was a sprint. Oh my I just, God. I just, every day I sat there and I did so it. So hate you more. I was just going to say like, we have to stop because I'm so full of loathing at this no. point. <laughs> it, it's weird. It, it, it was very, very easy and very, very hard at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Where well, I which get... is fitting because it's a book about opposites, right? Yeah, it really is. Yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah. yeah. Um, Although I have nothing but love for this, this novel. Thank I went, you. It, you know you love it when you finish and want to immediately turn back to the beginning. And That's totally, awesome. Totally. Which Thank I, you. we both did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's weird because it's one of these things where it's it's not that I'm um I'm I don't think I'm arrogant or anything like, but I'm really I'm really proud of it. I love this book and it's I'm like 
As I was telling Kate earlier, I'm a fan of this. I was going to ask if you could set up a scene for us. Huh? We, we talked about Tolstoy. Yeah, you want me to read a bit? Yeah, that'd be... Okay, so the part I'm going to read, the book takes place in 1907, but a large part of it is looking back to the years preceding 1907 in Europe. Currently, the characters, the narrator, they're lost in a fictional jungle in South America. So this is a part where he's looking back, the narrator, where he and his mentor, Yakov, have gone to Leo Tolstoy's estate, Yasnaya Palyana, in Russia. They meet what which becomes... um a deep friendship and kind of a sidekick of theirs, Ulrich, who is one uh, known as one of the best, basically, dog catchers in Europe. I think you'll kind of get the rhythm and the, the cadence of the story in this excerpt, and I'll just go from there. Yakov's rancor had its exceptions, though, and with literature it was the death of Ivan Ilyich, and thus we found ourselves at Yasnaya Palyana for a spell before things went awry, and we fled Yasnaya Palyana, literally ran from Yasnaya Palyana to the Tula station, where Ulrich tracked us down, Really no different than him tracking down the serves bitches. It's taken me three months, Ulrich explained, but I've rounded up most of the serves bitches and the bitches pups and even the pregnant mutts and undoubtedly the sires of all these wretched hounds. This expressed on the Tula station platform, where Yakov and I were fleeing not only Tolstoy, but also his roguish disciples, a crew of zealots with no sense of decency or independent thought, running for our lives from the Tolstoyans, and it felt as if Yakov and I were waiting endlessly for the train to arrive and extract us from Tula and Yasnala Palyana and finally from Russia, because we'd been waiting for hours when Ulrich emerged and still no train, no people, deserted, simply a station master with mutton chops and a cassock coat. And it wasn't only that the trains weren't punctual, it's that they didn't seem to exist at all, as if the Tula train station had been constructed in a place where no trains arrived or departed, a time perhaps before the train was invented, an abandoned idea, a false start. Though we knew this wasn't the case, for Yakov and I had arrived at the Tula train station weeks before, in order for Yakov to have an audience with Tolstoy himself, for him to look into the prophet's eyes and see for himself the pathos of authentic melancholy. So I rounded up the serfs' mongrels, Ulrich explained, in an accent that could have been Belgian as easily as Austrian or Bulgarian, because the countess, he said, was, for all intents and purposes, running the show, meaning the household, which indeed was a show with a venerable cast of religious pilgrims and hangers-on and wannabe riders and their half-dozen children, and don't forget the housekeepers and the serfs and their endless packs of ferocious smuts, who, if they happen to emerge, sent the visitors and the Tolstoy scampering. Really a staggering show, and me circling the estate, killing mongrels, burying mongrels, crawling through the forest at night and checking the traps because the countess insisted she wanted no dogs left. I want no dogs left, she vowed, not a single goddamn dog, and she was emphatic. Wasting no words, telling me she didn't want to find another mongrel or she-bitch, wandering Yasnala Palyana like a rabid whore. Pardon my French, she said, French being the language we spoke to one another in, and that, of course, I did pardon her for, since she wasn't only a countess, but Countess Tolstoy herself. And besides, she was the one paying me for the job, signing the check, so to speak. Even though the dogs infuriate my husband, the countess told Ulrich, even though he hears the packs at night plotting in small gangs, trampling the black earth, attacking one another, his religion prohibits the killing of these dogs. And I told her I had the means to collect the mutts and move them away, since I was up to date on the most modern and scientific methods of luring and trapping these beasts. But she merely smiled, a stoic smile that expressed a lifetime of quiet diligence, then shook her head and simply said no, kill them all. Insisting I wasn't to utter a word of this to Lev, not a single word about my reason for being at Yasnala Palyana, a place of sublime peace and beauty, with placid meadows and rolling hills and verdant pastures and, of course, the magnificent birch trees, a place more peaceful than peace itself, unless, of course, 
The dogs were taken into account. Because if the dogs were roaming, it became a place of unbridled terror. For I have tracked and caught the rabid inner city dogs of Munich and Sarajevo and Paris, said Ulrich, and countless other capitals. But nothing prepared me for the bitches at Yasnara Pollyanna, who, Ulrich claimed, were more vicious and fearless than any he'd encountered. The dogs don't belong to Tolstoy's souls any longer. They belong only to themselves. They made that clear long ago, long ago when they decamped in mass from the serf's huts, where life was messy but good. In essence, the dogs said, screw yourselves, we'll make it on our own. And they have. Packs of mixed breeds and half-breeds, huskies and shepherds and agitated schnauzers, not to mention the infernal Dobermans. All sorts of dogs antagonizing each other, bringing out the worst in each other. For I've been doing this for two decades, Ulrich said on the station platform in Tula, a station like an excavation site, like a cavernous stream. I've followed these mongrels and witnessed the most diabolical behavior. If I rehabilitate and peddle the dogs my clients don't want, for the purposes of hunting and protection and the occasional case of companionship. But these creatures aren't fit to be taken back to my compound at the base of Jungfrau, nor my training pins in Berlin. No, they behave in a manner that insists they be put down. For I've looked into the eyes of these beasts and seen the darkness of nightmares, a darkness without reflection. I've seen the sinking of Europe in the eyes of these hounds. <laughs> yeah, so I think that's another bone to pick. Okay. This is, I didn't so know, you, we invited you on the show to <laughs> just you. bitch about how good this oh. book is. Thank you. Yeah, so you're dealing with all these big questions, and mm-hmm. then at the same time, it's hilarious. It's Thank so you. Thank you. Which is maybe the only way to deal with these big questions. Yeah, so. yeah. It's definitely um, a very satisfying way at this particular juncture in our nation's history. It is. History it is. In a particular moment of time. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's that guilt with kind of what's going on in the world and going, well, you know, is it right to just sit in my house and invent things? Because, you know, it's fiction. I just sit and I use my imagination and I love words and I do all that. Um, but someone, you know, on Twitter, of course, said something along the lines of, you know, the fact that you're doing what you want to be doing and, you, and you're trying to, uh, you know, use humor to express ideas and do that is uh, is kind of a victory in itself. Like you're, you're, it's not stopping you from living your life and trying to express yourself. So that's maybe me trying to make myself feel better. But um, no, dark times indeed. They yeah. definitely are. Yeah. So I mean, the whole thing about the fact that 1984 is still we can still buy it means that it's not 1984. You know, true, that sort true. Of thing. I mean, like- absolutely. Absolutely. And I guess you guys will probably end up talking about the end. But of course, the note that the book ends on with this kind of naive, uh, oh, it's going to be a great century. So, <laughs> you know, which I think so rings- that's the perfect segue, because I was going to ask you about about models. And you mentioned one. Um, and I don't remember if we were recording when you mentioned it. But the book this reminded me most of is Candide. <laughs> Oh, wow. Which <laughs> I know, like, high compliment. Episodic, Absolutely. Absurd, yeah. you know, qua- like, kind of ridiculous quest. Um, huge cast of characters that manages to each, you know, hold its own. So, yeah, I am comparing you to the 250-year-old, you know, Enlightenment classic. You are very kind. It's well-deserved. <laughs> Thank no, you. Right? And, of course, the, the subtitle of Candide is, is the optimism. And I've probably just only read parts of Candide in college, but I've never read uh, the entire thing at all. Full disclaimer, me neither. I can't believe I I had, like, I took French in high school and I read it in French. It's like insane. I can't do that now. I'm not smart. I'm not as smart as I was in high school. It's very depressing. (laughs) I'm just going to read this, you know, French classic and then write papers on it and in French. And no biggie. And now there's, I, I could, I don't know, I could maybe read like three sentences of it. 
And I have I read it in English in college too, but there's something like so cool that I've actually even read it in French. But I also know that that was a certain time and place that will never come again. The book, I mean, if there's any, if the, the biggest fingerprint on this book would absolutely be, and if anyone's read him, they would know. I mean, it's, I don't try and hide. It would be uh, Thomas Bernhard who uh, was an Austrian writer and he, his books, the joke is that he wrote like nine or 10 novels in his career and wrote maybe four paragraphs. <laughs> so his books, his books are these, and I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, because what you do, of course, like any art or anything you, you steal and you make it your own. So his books are very, very internal. They're these rants, these monologues that are very angry, very repetitive, but also very, very funny. They're very dark, but they're very funny, beautifully written, beautifully translated. Um, his books are very, very interior, and my book is kind of written in that style. It's, it's, it's um, got a lot of, um, you know, movement. It's moving forward. It's, it's a, it's a kind of a monologue. It's a rant. However, there's a lot of action. There's a lot of outside action. Things are happening. So that's it's a, dense. I mean, you get. I yeah. couldn't believe at the end that I had read 150 pages yeah. and so much had happened at the <laughs> same awesome. time that there were so many soliloquies and right. monologues. Right. And, uh, aside yeah and, uh thank you yeah well it, it's this weird like you said opposites it's it's there's it's a lot of words there's a lot of words in this book and yet there's no fat like nothing is superfluous you know so it's a very very wordy book and yet i, I try to make sure that there's nothing in there that's not necessary yeah yeah, yeah so yeah. it's kind of a contradiction where it's a lot of words but hopefully none are wasted Jess and I were trying to think about novels that are also trying to deal with questions of philosophy Sure. on the way over. And, you know, I thought of Camus and, uh -huh. but the striking differences to me is I don't want to go sit down with a glass of wine right. and dig in. It's not delicious. The Stranger is not delicious. No, 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 no. Yeah. In the way that this is. I'm so I mean, glad like, to hear that. Yeah. Know. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I want it to be kind of, um. I guess there's parts where I want to be almost like it's a weird word, but humid, where you feel you're in the jungle and you feel like things are happening. And um, I mean, you want to write the book that you'd want to read. And that's, I guess, why I love this book is because mm -hmm. this like speaks to the things that I love. Like it's it's got a little bit of Caesar Ira talking back about influences. Yeah. It's got some Bolaño. Uh, it's definitely got a ton of Thomas Bernhard, who is very repetitive and very, you know, all these these kind of monologues that Yakov does is, is a lot like kind of these Bernhard characters. But mm -hmm. also, I think the book that I read right before I started reading this I'd loved By Night in Chile for years, so that was always a longtime fan. But I read, you know that writer, Laszlo Krasnohorkai? Yes. So yes. he had that little double novella called The Wolf and Herman. Uh -huh. I've still not read Herman, but I read The Wolf, <laughs> which is like maybe 70 pages. I mean, it's really a short story. And for him, it's a single sentence. And it's a guy at a bar in like Prague or Budapest talking about how he was mistaken for the scientist, asked to fly to Spain and find this wolf that they thought were uh, was... Um, I don't know, extinct. So the guy goes thinking he's not really the right person. And it's the whole thing is being told to a bartender who does not care. He's indifferent. He's just kind of like cleaning glasses, like just shut up guy. And so that was stylistically a big, big influence was the wolf by uh, Krasno Horkai. Oh man. Yeah. It, it shows. Yeah. So those were the big influences really. I know it wasn't Florida's public school system that no. stoked these fires. Yeah. In your in your heart, right? For Latin American literature, <laughs> Eastern European literature, right? Where what? I mean, we talked about it on the last show, with right? Steve, right. But I don't think I know where it came from. Like, so why I, exactly are you so weird? 
No. You know what? No, no, no. But I know. I well, you know, I always felt like I'm the only person in my family that's kind of like left Florida, and I lived in California for four years, moved back to Florida, finished school. Oh, that's the problem. Yes, <laughs> that explains everything. So I'm I'm definitely the black sheep. Like you know, my siblings and and I love them all, but they're very much like, yeah, that what's wrong with Florida? And I'm like everything. <laughs> I just, I just had to get out. So I've always been the one that's been a little bit odd. But my last two years, I went to boarding school and a lot of the kids in my class were, were Latin American and they were sent from other countries and I became friends with these people. So I think maybe unconsciously that maybe junior and senior year, junior and senior year. Yeah. It was actually, it was, it was kind of a military school, but it was, they wanted you to go. It was a college prep school. They wanted you to go to college. Not because that was a discipline problem, but my older brother kind of went astray and went to like, you know, Oh my God, junior college. And my parents are like, well, we don't want you to, you know, we want you to get it together. And it still took me forever to finish college, but I'm like, yeah, I'll go to boarding school. So I went to this school, like 30 minutes from my house, boarded during the week, went home on the weekends. And I went to school with lots of Latin Americans, you know, not a lot. I mean, the graduating class was like 29 people. But then I read, of course, many, many years later, Garcia Marquez, that kind of stoked the fire like it does for a lot of Anglo readers. And then after Bolaño, forget it. That was it. And um, yeah. And the publisher, New Directions, put out a ton of really great Latin American writers in the early aughts. So a lot of writers like uh, Cesar Ira Bolaño, but uh, a writer called, uh, I forget his first name, but Castellanos Moya, mm-hmm. Enrico Villamadas, and all these writers. And it just, I love New Directions. You kind of find a publisher you like and you follow right, them. Right. And if you follow New Directions, then you are inevitably reading Latin American writers. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. When, when's the book about your prep school experience coming out? Yes. I can't write from my life. Like I look at writers like Brian Washington or Cameron. I mean, hers is deaf. I mean, Brian's a fiction writer, but I know he draws from his own life and I'm just, not, it's not my DNA. I don't, I mean, I write obviously about things I care about, but there's very little uh, yeah. biography in my books. Yeah. I'm just, I, I'm not that kind of writer. You know, and I see it and I don't have it in me. We we talked about this last podcast. Oh, did we? Okay. And the parking lot, you know, mm. the parking garage. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, Phil will write that story. Will you write Mark's story? <laughs> yes. You can interview oh, yeah. him. Yes. I'll interview. Write my story. We'll edit. And, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it'll be beautiful. Exactly. I don't, did we talk about the Eastern European stuff, though? I don't think we did. So, um okay. So I was raised uh, reformed Jewish, so I was like bar mitzvah, but it was a very relaxed house, very relaxed upbringing. It wasn't religious at all, really, except, of course, being bar mitzvah, because that's what you do. But my family goes back, uh, like my dad's side is uh, like Eastern European, Hungarian and German. And before I got into Latin American, in like my 20s, I loved the Russian writers. So I loved Dostoevsky, 19th century especially, Dostoevsky, Gogol, Tolstoy, Chekhov. And of course, Krasnod Horkai is a Hungarian writer. So... I kind of have a foot in each hemisphere um, with this book, mm-hmm. which are just things that I love. And I think I was able to find a way to kind of, you know, have them coexist. They do. Yeah. They yeah. Do they really, really do. Beautifully. Yeah. So, so no, I love but Eastern. I didn't, I didn't know that, but I was thinking about the the similarities between. Latin there really are. They're, they're both these places where absurdist ma- magical realism, you know, thrives probably because of, you know, similar political upheaval absolutely totalitarianism yep and then of course there's like migration at least one way from eastern european to latin and south America. absolutely and yeah it all makes sense now but honestly it's your book that made me realize that and yeah I, there, I, 
There is this relationship, yeah. And when you look at, like, Latin American writers that are celebrated, like Clarice Lispector was born in Ukraine, and she's Jewish, and she was raised in Brazil, but she was, she, she, they were leaving, you know, anti-Semitism. So there is that relationship. And my wife and I, I think the first time she was in Mexico City, we were driving through in, like, an Uber or a taxi downtown Mexico City, and it was a Saturday, and it was the Sabbath, and we're driving by in the middle of Mexico City, this booming metropolis, and you see all these Hasidic Jews with the fur hats and the beards and... You're in Mexico because there is this huge Jewish Jewish population in Latin America. Wow, I didn't know it was in Mexico also. Uh, Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I mean, I know Mexico's, you know, it's it's got a very corrupt government. It's, it's very violent in lots of areas, but they've always been very, very open with their borders. I mean, so many people left Spain. A huge population in Mexico are people that left the, the dictatorship in Spain. And, and Mexico said, come over here. You're welcome here. And, I, you know, I think they did that to, to the Jews and, and people in, after World War II. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so cool to think, like, stylistically. I took a magical realism in college. Yeah. And we did read, you know, Bruno Schultz. Sure, sure. Spectrum, you know, like, right. And it, it, it turns out it's it's a lot. There's a lot of shared DNA, literally and, and literarily. You no, know, you're right. You're right. They, re- <laughs> they really do. Yeah. It's really wild. But, yeah. yeah, to see it flip back and forth within, you know, not only the same paragraph, because that would be your whole book, but often right. the sentence. Yeah. It's just, it really underscored that. And it's just, it's just so interesting. Thank you so much. And, and a lot of it, of the book, it's really, it's the magic of, 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 of fiction, of, of, of invention, of, of creation is that there's so many things you don't know you're doing until you're done. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I was going to ask about that because I, you know, I'm reading both because I know I'm going to have a conversation with you, but mm-hmm. also just getting swept away in the narrative. And then I'm thinking, um, why are we in 1907, the setting of the book, 1907, yeah. our narrator has sort of hitched his wagon to Yaakov, who's uh-huh. the, the, <laughs> the, the guy seeking to answer everything that we need to know about melancholy. It's yeah. The definition of melancholy. And then and he just he begins to get this orbit, this cast of characters that, that follow him and, and hitch their wagons to him as well. And I was like, yeah, like, what is the analog to that? Why is this meaningful now? You know, like right. this like salon of people tra- traipsing the world, following this like blowhard. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, four seconds later, I was like, Oh yeah, we, we all do that to some extent, to some extent. Either, you know, either you're following some, Cooking adult rock band. Right. Yakov again. <laughs> right. Or or Adderall various political right. leaders. Political people. No uh, names necessary. Gwyneth Paltrow like, even. I mean Goop. Yeah, exactly. Goop, exactly. Right? Like, no, it's true. And this isn't something I set out to do, but you know, like you know, they say the old cliche, the writers kind of, you know, talk to you. So Yakov is is kind of a prototyper that that type of person who is his personality is, is strong, it's powerful, and he does attract people and you have to wonder why these people follow him and I think there's lots of questions uh, about the narrator like, you know, why does he feel beholden to him? Why does he worship him and worship him and I don't know if he has a lot going on in his life or not. Um <laughs> but um but yeah, I mean there he is just like somebody with red hair. Yeah, like, exactly. I don't know, you know. Hair. I mean, you know, if you're into that kind well, of thing. Well, it's like so. a father substitute it's a way out. Yes. It's a love interest. Who, Absolutely. You know, there's all a those lot powerful. Yeah, there's all those things. Exactly. And, you know, hopefully if you end up kind of like idolizing or worshiping or orbiting around a person, hopefully they're a good person. But 
you know, often, <laughs> often if you're a truly good person, you wouldn't want people to do that to you, you know? Right. Exactly. right. So exactly. Yeah. Kick them out of your, your, your coach as you're barreling down, <laughs> leaving the Tolstoy estate. Exactly. We also, Jess and I spoke extensively about our favorite women in this mm. novel. Sonia. Yes. Yes. Sonia, Poor Sonia. Who, with the yeah, the amputee and yeah. then uh and then our our <laughs> translator Elsa. Yes. But both have two they each have a scene that I love and will not stop thinking about and haven't stopped thinking wow. about. I don't know. Can we talk about the Elsa scene without giving too much away? Maybe it's giving too much away. I mean, I think so. I mean, uh, you know, um Yakov spent his life misreading someone and he goes and tracks down the translator who if anyone in the world is going to understand the person Yakov misread it would be her and he proceeds to uh, try and get information out of her you know in order to to kind of track down his his uh, his hero this this kind of enigmatic Latin American prophet or philosopher you know philosopher or you know self-help writer who knows and and he's he's not very he's not very nice to her and he really doesn't like her apartment either and, uh, Although he's bewitched by her at the beginning. Oh, he, he is. She's beautiful. He thinks she's beautiful. And he thinks that she has a view that whittles down <laughs> right. to nothing. Yes. Yeah. She's like yeah. so pissed at her for the view yeah. not being good. At yes. Being yeah. I mean, why not inherit Reinhardt tobacco money? Why is it so, I mean, that's stupid why? not to. Yeah. Right. Oh, God. My marginalia at that point right. is not, not fit for children. Right. But no, I think... I don't think it's overblown to say it might be the the greatest depiction of mansplaining in it really is in modern literature I've ever seen. I agree. Well, yes. well thank you. I mean, he these men. Ties her up. He <laughs> ties her. He he's in an effort to extract information from her, but then he just espouses. He just talks at her the entire time. Yeah. All of yeah. Yeah. Well, it's um the the book I've just finished is kind of similar in that in that the men take the front stage and they are the ones and then the women are kind of minor characters, but they're in the background kind of nodding their heads going, "You guys are idiots." So, um <laughs> poor Sonia by the book's end is is missing a limb. However, you know, she's alive. And <laughs> and and I think hopefully at the end you realize that, you know, she's she's much the wiser and uh, she has a and better mistress of the second Stuttgart castle. Yes, exactly. Right. She, you know, she you know. She has a room of her own. She has a whole castle of her own. Grand exactly. Like, she gets the, the final word on... Right. She gets That's the last true. word on writing. She does. I'm blanking. Who says writing is death? Oh, um... A form of death. Is that Yakov? No, no. That's uh, it's the uh, Kiroski. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he he says that, which is why he wants to retire from writing. Right. Right. But she, but she gets to... She gets to stay at home in the castle and yeah, and do her thing. Absolutely, inside. and I would love to, to. I believe happily ever after. Yeah, I think yeah, I think things you know, we'll we'll see. But it's it's open it's open ended. <laughs> Is there a part two? <laughs> I don't think there's a part two. Yeah, I don't think there yeah, will be. It but would be tough. it would be. It would be tough. But why you can't let me have a happily ever after for Sonia? Of course. She's fine. You, you did know? not seem well, to buy that. No, no, no. I think Sonia's fine. She's got the estate. She's collecting yeah. dust and, you know, she's doing her thing. So there's a, yeah, there's another 30 years before kind of the Nazis come. So she will never collect dust. No, no. Once she hears. Yeah. She's read her beautiful poetry and take her multiple lovers. Exactly. I mean, she really does have agency in her life. I mean, I wanted to give her agency, you know, as far as, you know, 
you know, not being jealous if Yaakov wasn't interested or, or met someone else. And she's like, I've got my own life. I don't, I don't need you. So I definitely wanted to try and give her agency. This wasn't meant to be, I mean, as, as you can tell when you read it, it's obvious that um, I am poking fun at these, uh, at these men that have ideas larger than themselves. Yes. I so that's another I, Candide echo, by the way, mm. is that his, his love interest also loses uh, a leg. Did you know that? I did, I did not know. I didn't know that. Like, I think it's on the back of my book as a blur, but one or two people <laughs> have compared my book to the movie Fitzcarraldo by Herzog, yeah. which I've, I, I've always known of it, but I've never seen it. So it's great when you're compared to things that are, especially Candide, are well established and well known, but, but I haven't seen them, which is... In a way, good because it's like okay, I didn't steal that idea, but <laughs> plausible denial. I am going to do- go and wild. read Candide like now. It is, it's like I don't know, some Voltaire is speaking to you through the ages. You know, Voltaire yeah. to Tolstoy to you. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, you you do realize the more you read and you write that no, there's nothing new. I mean, everything has been done, yeah, and totally. yeah. you know, you can yeah. read Don Quixote, and you you know it's all been done. Well, may you inherit all the Reinhardt tobacco money to be able to continue. I, I want to. I want to, yes. These amazing books into the world, which was, yeah, happy. I was going to see. Yeah, there was also a question you'd asked earlier about, um, oh, like, why did I pick places, I think, like Croatia and all that? All of that was very, very kind of random and just the serendipity of writing where I just, um, I, I looked at places that, and it's funny because, you know, Croatia is like, I finished the book and then I see all these shows on Croatia and it's really hip and it's beautiful and it's gorgeous. And you've got this guy who's there and he's just cursing it. I hate it. Uh, <laughs> which is also a huge influence of, of Bernhard because Thomas Bernhard's novels, he just he just hates Austria. He's a Viennese writer. He, he rants. I mean, his books rant against Vienna and the people and the food and the culture. And he never left. He lived there his whole life. But he hates Austria. And so I kind of borrowed that with him hating his, his homeland. These documentaries and these, these films, I'm like, oh my God, Croatia's beautiful. <laughs> so, Another but you know, yeah. I mean, any place can be just like melancholy and joy are pretty much the same thing. I exactly. Mean, right, it's, all, it's all perception. Yeah, it is. You, you take your state of mind wherever you go. Exactly. Exactly. When you were on the show last, we did not yet know about the fate of Reinhardt's sure. Garden. You had you had finished a manuscript. You were shopping around. Yeah. Tell us the joyful slash melancholic story <laughs> of your publishing journey. Oh, of Coffee course. Coffee House. So Coffee House is there, fantastic. And they were the first publisher I sent it to. They were the one I wanted. Um, mostly aesthetically. Like you, you write something and you kind of write it going, I see it with them. Uh, partly because they publish books I love. They publish books that aren't always very big. They don't really, I can't think of a really, they've, they've published a few that are bigger, maybe 300 or pages, maybe plus, not by much. But a lot of their books like Valeria Lucelli, Caesar, no, not Caesar Ira, but um, a lot of their books are smaller. Como Madre, a book they did. We, I, Jess and I were talking about Ben Lerner on the way over here. Yeah. Ben Lerner was, that was the first Coffeehouse book I read. Oh, uh, wow. I think it was the Leave and I still have the, the first edition, which they even famously say is really ugly. They have a new edition now that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. They, they joke about it. really ugly. It was yeah. not a great No, they, their design has definitely stepped up. And so, <laughs> so I sent it to, working at the bookstore, I got to know know the people that worked at coffee house uh, i got to know chris fishbach the publisher and 
I um I just emailed him. Uh, Chris Kander actually sat me down. She'd read it and she read my earlier book and was a big fan. And she kind of stormed in the bookstore one day and pointed at me. My wife is there and goes, "Mark, you're meeting me at Starbucks. We are going to send an email to Chris Fishbach." So she she's the second dedication in the book actually after Chris Fishbach. There's two Chris's. Mm-hmm. So I sent it to Chris and he was very sweet and said, sure, I'll take a look. But I also know that he is a publisher, much in demand, and they get a lot of stuff. So I didn't, I was happy he was going to look at it, but I didn't know what would happen. And about seven or eight months went by and I didn't hear anything. And I, I reached out and I said, hey, Chris, I know you're busy. No pressure. Is it okay if I maybe shop it around? And he said, absolutely. That's more than fair. And so I sent it to a couple of other publishers. I probably shouldn't name them, but, um, and they were receptive. They said, we'll look at it. And he had some time off, I think, during Thanksgiving. I remember this probably much better than Chris Fishback would because it's like life-changing stuff. And it's like, yeah, it was a really good book. I accepted it. But I'm leaving work on a Saturday and I get a, a message and it's Chris Fishback. He goes, Mark, halfway through your book, I love it. Is it still available? I just want to make sure before I continue. And um, I was in my car. I literally pulled over and uh, I was like, don't seem too thirsty. <laughs> Oh, five minutes. Yeah, no, exactly. I'll wait, I'll wait. But I wrote him back and I said, "Uh, yes, it's available. I really hope you like it. You know, I hope you like the rest. I was picking up my wife. I picked her up. I said, hey, you know, he said he's reading it now. Oh my God. Okay, I hope he keeps reading it. And the very next day, it was a Sunday. I was at work and I got a message from him and he said, hey, I sent you an email. So I opened up the email and that was it. He's like, I love it. It fits our aesthetic. I'm a a big fan. I I, want to publish it. And that was it. And I think I cried a little bit because I've been, you know, I've been going at this for like 20 years. Yeah. Join Melancholy right there. So, so I cried a little bit. And of course I wrote him back and said, yes, uh, absolutely. This is a dream come true. And it it really is. It's been great working with them. They love the book really much as is. The editing was very good. I worked with uh, Carla Valdez at Coffeehouse and also a freelance editor that used to work at Coffeehouse and uh, Anitra Budd. And both of them love the book and were very, very, they were hands-on, but hands-off. So what I did, they loved. All they really wanted to do was make it a better book, which we've done and tighten it up. I thought they might want to break it up into paragraphs or chapters. None of that. That never even came up. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and so all they did was kind of make me, help me make it, I think, just a tighter book. Yeah. But they loved what they saw and that was it. So it was really, it. they've been great. They're just a dream press. Victory. Yes. Victory. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. But it also makes you uh, grateful and know the, the arbitrary nature of publishing because you know that there's books that are probably as good as mine, maybe not as good, maybe better, that are probably on some editor slush pile. And that's just, that's numbers, you know? And that's just kind of right. the fate of stuff. Right. So hopefully yeah. those books will get, uh, you know, recognized as well. So I feel very lucky. Yeah. Well, and relationships, right? I mean, absolutely. It, it is to your credit. It's to your credit that you have a good relationship with Chris Gander and that she has a good relationship with, you know, Jessica yeah. Chris. And, no, you're right. You know, I mean, there's, I mean, we talk about like relationships and sort of schmoozy insider baseball thing, but it is also purely about like i like you i like your writing exactly exactly i mean yeah no chris kander and i really couldn't be more different writers you know we're both fiction writers and we write maybe and like i said earlier we kind of invent as we go we don't really plan things out but we're very very different and yet we're we're huge huge fans of each other's work and we're big supporters of each other and yeah we just really we just like each other you know we're very we're very good friends that way yeah 
So you read and and stock it browsers a lot of translated work, and plus your book of short stories was translated into Spanish. Mm -hmm. But then you talk about in the book, Jacob's idea of living translators are a contradiction. <laughs> so my question is to you: Do you want Reinhardt's Garden to be translated? And oh my God, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I mean, I, I know Coffeehouse is working on that, and and that's one of the oh, things cool. that yeah, awesome. yeah, they're working on world rights because I think Chris saw that that this is the kind of book that I think would appeal to people in Europe and. Spain and in uh, yeah. Germany, you know, it's, I think it's a very international book. I mean, I live in Houston and uh, you know, by default, I'm a Houston writer, but you don't look at me and go, Oh yeah, this writer's from, yeah, I don't, I don't read Texas or, you know, or, you know, I am a, a, uh, I always want to say, uh, an implant instead of a transplant, but I'm a transplant. <laughs> um, I like that. Yeah, no, I'm not like, a. I don't, like, yeah. like fake boobs, totally. Right. But I mean, and I've said it, I think before, is that I think my my home, and this is going to sound so pretentious, but my home is 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 books and literature. So I don't really have a. I don't feel like I'm from Florida. Uh, I love living in Houston, but I don't think I'm like a Houston writer. So to answer your question, no, I would love to for it to be translated. I think it's a very it feels like a very international book, you know, like because it, it's kind of globe trotting and it goes to different places. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it would be a crazy missed opportunity. So I'm so happy to hear. Yeah, that. that's, so they, yeah, that's definitely great. a big thing on their agenda. And of course, I, I don't agree with with uh, Yakov. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think Yakov said it? I think that it ties in with his personality, and I think you know, like literature sometimes are truths. So it doesn't mean it's the truth. But it's a truth. Sure. So for Yakov, the truth to him is that something can't be real until it's whatever, been dead for 100 years or the person that did it. So for him, that's his truth. And I don't uh -huh. agree with it, but I think for him, he believes that, you know. And, but also, I think it contradicts that he himself wants to be successful and be lauded. And I think part of that's probably just a little bit of jealousy. <laughs> you know, like he, you know, and I don't, the one person we didn't bring up and then I'll shut up. His big influence that he left, the, uh, the, the German philosopher, the guy that, that, Klein. Yeah, Klein. Oh, right. yes, the Klein right. so I, I think, I think Klein, and I, I didn't think, know this until I finished the book. You don't know things until you're finished sometimes is I think Yakov hates Klein because Klein is, is celebrated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not yeah. because he's got but some. He, he's like a successful influencer. He exactly. Like right. Millions right. of followers. Exactly. Or something. Right. And I think he resents that. So. Mm -hmm. Did you call him Rihanna? Right. <laughs> yeah. He is Rihanna. Oh, that's my other question. We're never getting to what? the third segment. We're never getting to the third segment. But I have to ask this question. Sure. Okay. When this is picked up by, I don't know, Sony Pictures Classics. Probably, Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Who directs? And stars. Well, you know what's funny? When I wrote this, I remember thinking the relationship, and I thought about this a lot. I was telling my wife this as I read. I thought the relationship between Yakov and the narrator reminded me a lot of um, Ray Fine's character in the in the doorman in the Grand Budapest Hotel. I have I have Wes Anderson all over. Yes, this yes. Book. So I, yes, I yes, it's a buddy film. It is kind of a buddy film. It's an and, indie buddy film. Yeah, and that movie was kind of that era of Europe where it's kind yes. of a fall of of that 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 time period. You know, uh, Stefan's wide writing about the end of it and the the rise of fascism. So um, Bill Murray's the guy at the end, which I won't say. Right, about, right. We don't the, know who that yeah, is, but who, but yes. that's Bill Murray. Yeah, that's yes. Bill Murray. Sure, I could see it being Wes Anderson. I mean, I think you'd have to tone it down. I mean, you want it to be silly, but you don't want to be too silly so right, yeah, yeah. it definitely has some wes anderson okay yeah a little more serious wes yeah anderson. yeah a little toned down but yeah
Okay, so we, we're going to go quick through this last segment, which you inspired. It's al- it's always been the grab bag segment of the show. I love it. I love it. We do opposites. Oh, man. We, so, you know, we, we ricochet between hope and despair. And, sure. Yeah. Right now, today, mm-hmm. what's the best thing about being a writer and the worst thing about being a writer? The best thing about being a writer, I think, is the best thing that it's always been, which is that you can sit alone and have a relationship with words and text and ideas and do that. And I think the worst thing is probably probably social media. You know, it's necessary now, it seems like, but it's also kind of bad. Um, I mean, it, it can be good. I've met lots of people, really good people, but it's also, you know, you get on there, like, and I'm talking specifically about Twitter and it's, it's you know, it's pretty, it's hard not to be kind of brought down by it, by just, you know, it's very noisy. <laughs> So, so I think the best part about being a writer is the thing that's always been about being a writer, which is that never changes. Just my best friend said years ago when I was trying to get stuff published and he's very kind of zen and, and chill. And he's like, Mark, just remember the best part about it. The, the thing that matters is you sitting there doing the work. Nothing else matters. Yeah. And he's right. I mean, the thing is that you've got the thing and that's what you're doing. And that's what it's about. Yeah. You know, it's not about, you know, doing the thing. Absolutely. Retweets. Exactly. Exactly. Cool. All right. Best thing about publishing and worst thing about publishing. I think the best thing about publishing is that I think it's actually a really great time. There are so many working in a, in a bookstore, you see this, and now kind of being a published, not kind of being a published writer, you see all these really <laughs> cool, it's hard to kind of get used to that. I'm, I'm a published writer. You see all these um, these great presses that are uh, uh, appealing to all these different voices. You know, Me Too, whether it's, I mean, there's just all these great voices and they're, they're finding platforms. So they could be really small, any publishers, and they're finding an audience, you know? And it could be, I think there's a press I've discovered recently called World Editions. There's a feminist press, which has been around forever. I mean, decades, but they're really doing well, it seems like. And I I think that's really encouraging. Mm -hmm. The worst thing about publishing... Oh, gosh, I'm not sure. Hmm... Oh, I guess probably just in this, I'm not naming names, but probably all the big boys, the big, the big houses. I feel like they kind of take up a lot of the air and the traffic sometimes. Mm -hmm. And they don't always, at least specifically, they don't really appeal to me. Like when I look at my book and like someone's like, oh, is it going to be hardcover? I'm like, no, but most of my favorite books aren't hardcover. Like when I look for a book, I don't always look for a hardcover. Like I, so my book aesthetically is kind of the thing that I like. I like that it's kind of compact and it's all kind of in, in a little package. Sue and I opened yeah. it up. We were sitting next to each other and and immediately loved the enti- uh, the typesetting. They did a really the, good I job. Mean, the margins. It's attention to totally. detail was just so good and we they really did great. It. Yeah. Thank you. And I mean another thing about a small press like uh Coffee House is that I had all, like nothing is dictated. Everything is a question. Mark, do you like this? Do you like that? So they give their authors book design questionnaire like a packet what colors do you see when you think of your book? What adjectives? Do you have book titles, book covers that you like? Do you have pieces of art that you like? So um, this was a, a painting by Johan Ragundis, and I suggested that painter, and they got a great book designer. And so a lot of this was because they listened to me, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then they did fantastic stuff with it. It's not me. It's them, but... Yeah, I saw that they uh, Bookmobile did did some design for this work, and we love Bookmobile. Yes, yes, sure. they do a lot of their books. Guys. Yes, yeah, yeah. we great. work with Bookmobile in the past. That's right. For our printing, yeah. they're great, and I think they're in Minneapolis. I think. Yeah, yeah, they they're they're fantastic. Mm-hmm. Best thing about being a bookseller, and the worst thing about being a bookseller. I think I already know the worst thing about being a bookseller. <laughs> but I don't know who's going to listen to this. So the uh, the best <laughs> thing the best thing is that you get paid not a lot asterisk not a lot but you get paid to kind of peddle and talk and discuss and and share the stuff that you love your favorite things you also get to meet a lot of the people that either created the thing you love or behind it 
I think the worst thing is that, you know, it's the best thing at the same moment. It can be two minutes later. It can be the worst thing and that it's, you know, it's retail. So there's, there's a lot of things that happen. People sometimes will call and they're very angry or they want the thing that they want. They want it now. And they're like, well, I can go order it on Amazon or I can get the drone to drop it off. And (laughs) you you get that a lot. So, so being a bookseller right now, you sometimes get that and you just kind of shrug and say, well, we're not competing with Amazon. We're not, you know, we're not doing the same thing. We're a, a community space and you know, when's the last great event you went to at Amazon? You know, mm-hmm. so so that's kind of the worst. Don't give thing. them any ideas. Don't give them any oh, ideas. Yeah. yeah, they're monitoring it. Oh, I know. Right now, yeah. you know. That's it. Yeah. Amazon event yeah. services. Yeah. Okay. okay. Best thing about translation and translated books, and worst thing about translation and translated. Books. Okay, Same. and not to end on a on a bad note, also about book selling is that the Brazos has been, I mean, doing better and busier than we've ever been. Usually, our summers are slow, and we. I mean, I've been there six plus years this summer. It just, it never slowed down. I mean, it's just, we are just, we are, we're a busy store. People come and they want books and they want to listen to authors. And so yeah, it's a good time to, to, to be in bookstores. But anyways, the best and worst thing about translation, I guess the best thing is like, maybe like writing what it's always been is that um, you get to hear stories and voices from all over the world because of this, this kind of, I I don't know if you want to say gift, but because of the, the talent of a translator, um, and what I've always loved about it is that it shows how similar you are to someone that lives in China or, you know, uh, Hungary, um, but also um, the, the the differences that make you all unique, you know, which is a good thing. You know, you want you yeah. it's, it's wonderful for people to be different from each other and you celebrate that. And at the same time, you also celebrate the fact that they care about their kids and that they hurt if you kick them and that we're all in this together. So I think I think right. translation is um, is kind of an act of faith and going, I, I, I have empathy for the stories of people in other places. Mm. Worst thing about translation is that you don't know if it's good until a hundred years. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, um, I'm trying, I don't know if there's, I guess the, the, the thing would be bad translations and I know they're out there and some are bad. And sometimes you'll read a book and not sure if the book just isn't very good or if it's the translation. So I know they're out there and uh, usually I don't finish those books. I'll start to read and go, well, I'm, I'm not really into this, but I mean, that's not me trying to like throw shade or anything, but yeah, I guess the worst thing about translations is kind of finding, it's like, what's the worst thing about a hamburger? And you say, well, it's, it was a, not a good burger. So, <laughs> so not good translations. Yeah. Right. Right. Mark Haber. Yes. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It is always a pleasure. Thank you, thank so you guys. And yeah, Jess and, 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 and Kate and, and Fu, thank you for all your kind words and your support. It's fun that we're all kind of going on this journey together and I feel like we're, we're doing really good stuff. Effing Shakespeare is a production of Bloomsday Literary in association with Houston Creative Space, hosted by Kate Martin-Williams and Jessica Cole, and produced by me, Fu Lu. Yeah, well, yeah, Oprah, Reese, you know. Yeah. Reese, Reese, yeah. I, she's totally gonna do. She's totally gonna acquire this. Yeah, that's her style. G- Gwyneth, right? Gwyneth, it's gonna be in goo, you know. Gwyneth. <laughs> There's, is the P silent now, Mark? It's goop. But oh, it's goop. You're I right. I thought Thank it was like the French. <laughs> <Goop. Sorry. laughs> I mean, it's totally, 
It shows you how much I know about it. You know what? I called it Goo. Totally should be Goo. I got. I got a. That's what it makes me. The Goo. That's what. That's what Gwyneth makes me feel. That's, 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 a, that's I know. Yeah. That'd be our third podcast. You know. You? Wednesday Instead media. of you. Yeah, the Goo. Yeah. yeah Wednesday Media presents the Goo. Guest host by Mark Haber. <laughs> what do you think? I feel like it would be hilarious if she had chosen that because oh my God, it's... it means taste in French. So you know she's all about art being an arbiter of good taste. Right. So it could be a play, a playful play on the French word for taste, which is super snobby, but then it's also goo, like goo that you put on your face. Um <laughs> that's many, great. Steps, too many steps. Way too many steps are Way. Good. Did you turn the AC back on? Oh, I, can't. Ass. I, I know, but I, I am doing it right after you. You don't love me. <laughs> oh my word. Oh my word. Okay, hurry up. You hurry I'm up. I'm trying. You're gonna get AC. I'm trying.